Are you tired of putting yourself last? Of taking care of everybody else's needs and powering through to meet the next set of impossible standards? In our fast-paced society, we lose touch with our intrinsic worth, with the ability to value ourselves for who we are right now. Instead of living life exhausted, frustrated, and disconnected from your authentic self, maybe it's time to put yourself back in the life you've worked so hard to create. Join radio host and life choreographer Laura Cheadle and learn how to build your dreams and live your sparkle using the five steps of flaunt. Find your fetish, laugh out loud, accept unconditionally, navigate the negative, and trust in your truth. Welcome to Flaunt, Build Your Dreams and Live Your Sparkle. I'm Laura Cheadle, and more than anything, I want to engage with you. If you are on Facebook, please find my group, The Flaunt Flock, where you can connect with other like-minded people and we can all share our stories about our trials, tribulations, and successes in our ability to flaunt and to show ourselves as we really are, not as we think we are supposed to be. We're going to go through the five steps of flaunt during today's show, which are find your fetish, laugh out loud, accept unconditionally, navigate the negative, and trust in your truth. But first, as you know, I love flaunting. I love showing things that we're not supposed to show and talking about things that we're not supposed to talk about. And you know what? That's what really attracted me to today's guest. He is one of those incredible individuals that helps people express things that they are not, quote unquote, supposed to express. In particular, he helps people talk about cancer. You know, the C word, the thing that we all dread and the thing that we worry about and, and the thing that we incorrectly think, you know, if we don't talk about, it's not gonna happen to us. His new book is called Right for Life communicating your way through cancer. And there's just so much to say about my guest, his book, his work, so much to share. And I cannot wait to bring him on so he can start sharing that wisdom with you, whether or not you have or ever have had or ever will have cancer, or whether or not you know someone who has cancer. So, welcome to the show, David Tabatsky. Thank you so much, Laura. Thanks for having me. You are welcome. Okay, you're talking about cancer. Give us a little bit of history on the background around cancer and what inspired you to encourage other people to start sharing their cancer journey. Okay, well, as you said, there's a lot of taboo subjects that we grow up with, and cancer is one of them, along with divorce and drugs and things like that. People just, whatever, they don't talk about them. Uh, but the thing is, like you also said, most of us have either had the experience or we know someone who has, or we're afraid that we know someone who will. So whether it's past, present, or future, we are all somehow connected to cancer and also other types of uh, chronic disease. 
that may not have the same ring to it, but that can be just as challenging, whether it's diabetes or Parkinson's or any number of other chronic diseases that um, average people are dealing with every day. Your neighbors, your friends, your loved ones, uh, someone's bound to have some sort of health challenge that needs to be addressed. And that's what my work is about, helping people address these issues, sometimes using writing as a tool, but ultimately really whatever type of communication works, whether it's written, oral, uh, using electronic devices, all different kinds of things uh, to help people communicate with each other, with family and friends, and with their medical team. Ah, I like that. That's a, a very important distinction, I think. With your medical team, with your family and your friends, that can be a totally different type of communication. And, you know, when you said that, immediately I thought about my grandmother, who passed away about four years ago and fortunately did not have cancer. But I think about the way she communicated with her doctors was so different than the way I communicate with my doctors. And what I mean by that is I'm always asking questions and seeking more information. And she kind of grew up in an era where the doctor was kind of God and the doctor knew best and she didn't question. And you know, if you have cancer or any of these diseases, I think learning how to communicate with your medical team has got to be vitally important. It's crucial. You're absolutely right. And I think some of it is generational. My mother pretty much accepted whatever the doctor told her. It was, it was sort of uncouth or rude or inappropriate to question the doctor. And nowadays, I think more and more people are seeing the wisdom and the value in speaking directly to their doctor. The doctor's a human being. Whether this man or woman has a million degrees, it doesn't matter. They're still a person trying to figure out the best way to help us get better. Um, and part of that is knowing their patient. And so that's one thing I think that a lot more people are paying attention to. I want my doctor to see who I am, not just what my blood count numbers are or what my chest x-ray shows, but who I am as a full human being because it's a comprehensive thing when we talk about healing. We're not just healing numbers. We're not just healing broken bones. We're healing a full person, hopefully. And so that kind of communication on very practical levels, but also on levels of idiosyncratic passion and different things that define a person's personality have a lot to do with how they're going to handle the treatment and what type of treatment they're able to, to handle. This is the kind of communication that's really, really crucial from the get-go. And this is really suggests altering the entire paradigm of the patient-doctor relationship, not just how it relates to cancer, but just how it begins even with the child who goes to a pediatrician. That defines what a patient-doctor relationship is. Children grow up based upon their relationship with their pediatrician, how that person responds to them, what type of interest they take in who they are, how they see their parents respond to various things that might come up. Those inform who these people become as adults. Later in life, they do get faced with some sort of health crisis. That informs how they will uh, communicate with a doctor, what they think is possible, what they think is appropriate. And so the seeds are sown early, early on when a child first sees a pediatrician. 
Absolutely. And you know, as you were talking about that, I was thinking it's not only advocating on our behalf or communicating for us, but as parents, it just like you were saying, it is our job to, to communicate with our kid's pediatrician because we can't leave it up to the four-year-old. <laughs> so yeah, the four-year-old does watch us do it. And then if we're taking care of aging parents or aging family members, it is still our responsibility to know how to communicate with medical staff. So this is one of those things that I feel is really important. It's not just if you have cancer and you need to communicate, it's everybody needs this. Well, it's, it's not just, it's not just how to communicate. There's something fundamental even before that, Laura, it's we can communicate. We're not passive in this relationship. The patient ah. has self-responsibility and the patient has a responsibility to deepen the communication with their doctor and whoever else is on their medical team so that you can enable them to do the best job they can. Yeah. For example, for example if, if I get diagnosed with cancer and I eat a terrible diet, I, it's my responsibility to tell the doctor I eat red meat every day. I eat, I drink coffee with three teaspoons of sugar every day. I just need you to know that. Is that okay? Should I continue to do that? Or should I, do I need to change that? Can I still drink five cups of coffee every day while I'm taking, while I'm getting chemotherapy? Can I still, like these are really extreme, almost silly examples, but they make the point of the doctor doesn't know that unless you tell them. Mm -hmm. And the problem is the doctors aren't asking enough because they're not trained and encouraged to do this. They're, you know, nutrition and medicine in, in the Western uh, health system are, well, let's just say there's a big gap between uh, prescriptive medicine and the, the potential and the power of, of good nutrition. And so uh, it's up to the patients to bring that to the table a lot because the doctors won't. Or for example, I have trouble sleeping. How will this affect my sleeping? And what should I, what can I do about it? Or I'm scared. I'm scared. I'm scared in all the profane ways I could say how scared I am. Right. The doctor is not expected to become their psychotherapist, but the doctor has to help with that or recommend that they go to someone. I can only help you so much. I can't be your therapist, but here's, here's a clinic where you can go. Um, that kind of communication is just simply pragmatic to get the comprehensive health care that any patient might need in a given situation. So if your oncologist is the quarterback and they're going to organize your treatment and run the, the show, then patient, it's up to the patient to tell them, what what's possible or ask about what's possible yeah. um so and I, I love that you meant that you mentioned into that though i'm scared that's true no that's not a medical diagnosis but that is so vitally important because it goes to beliefs as well and if you're believing it, something's not going to work it's kind of not <laughs> it's the groundwork of all of this is fear yes and Absolutely. it's never never addressed. Look, 
a child, we go back to the pediatric context, a child can be frightened when they're about to cross the street if a big bus rides by. So it's not too hard for a parent to say, hey, it's a good idea to look both ways before you go across the street because you don't want that big bus to hit you. That's scary, right? And the child goes, yeah. It, and then it's a little too sophisticated for the child to understand that that fear is protecting them because they're going to look both ways because I don't want to get hit by a bus or I don't want to get hit by a car or I don't want to get hit by somebody on the bicycle or I don't want to get hit by somebody who's got their face in their phone and won't look up at the rest of the world. So we have to, those fears are protective. They're in a sense that fear is a prophylactic to protect you from what's dangerous. When we have fears about other things, society tells us that, oh, you're not man enough if you're afraid, or the woman can't be too emotional if she shows her fear. So we learn from an early age to stifle them and to repress, the, and to repress fear in general to repress anxiety, because if we're anything less than perfect with our mental health, then we're susceptible to bullying, we become something less than, and we get otherized. Yes. These are very subtle things that can happen even just to the average person, but they're highly dangerous. So then years later, someone's in their 30s, 40s, 50s, whatever, they get diagnosed with cancer, the fear hits, but all those years they've been learned to stifle their fears. They've been learned to they've learned to repress them that there's something wrong with being afraid. Obviously there's something wrong if we walk around all day afraid of everything. That needs to be addressed. That's a particularly extreme thing, but we're I'm just talking about normal, average, everyday fears and anxieties that we have just living in the world, crossing the street. Right. Will that guy that we like or that woman that we think is cute at the bar, will they talk to me? There's a little fear. There's a fear with I'll get the job that I interviewed for. There's a fear that I could lose my job because there's layoffs. We have fears and anxieties all the time. Right. Um, and then when we get diagnosed with an illness, bam, there's an explosion. All that fear comes right to the surface, and we don't know what to do with it because we're not trained to manage it. Absolutely. Yeah, and no. then, yeah. And then on top of that, too, like the examples that you've given, which are amazing, you know, the fear of crossing a street. We all talk about it. We have bus safety. We have street safety. We have driver's ed. It's things we talk about. So it does help us be able to manage that fear. But, you know, to your point, we don't talk about terminal illnesses. We don't talk about non-terminal illnesses that have we put all these weird emotional components on illnesses that don't necessarily have to be there. And then we don't talk about it and then it's hidden. And then the fear is even bigger. And we have no, we have no reference point for it. You made a really good point. We do have ways to manage some of those fundamental things. It's yeah. normal to be afraid to cross the street. If a bus is coming, that's a good, healthy fear that protects you from getting hit by the bus and having your life be finished. So that's, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty, that's pretty realistic. And we can, and it's, and there's an equation there, but then what happens when you get uh, diagnosed with any sort of illness, whether it's cancer or anything else, that's fear of the unknown. Yeah. Because, okay, I took, we took the science class in school. We learned a little bit about like, you should get vaccinated for the flu or you get a measles shot or 
you know, things like that. Or if somebody's coughing, it's good to turn away so they don't cough right in your face and make it, give you a cold. Those are things where, you know, those are, those are fears of known things. But when you get into fear of the unknown, man, the brain just kind of doesn't know what to do with it. That becomes irrational, illogical, abstract, almost epically religious in its otherworldliness. And that's a very scary place to be. Got a doctor sit, standing across from you telling you you have this illness or that piece of that type of cancer or whatever, and they're just going by the blood count numbers. They're going by your markers, CAT scans or whatever. That's what dictates that to them. So it's quite clinical. They don't, there's nothing on any of the radiology ex, uh, results that come back or anything that has to do with blood work where it says on the top, pay attention to the patient's fear. Right. Oh, tell them also about, you know, there's no, there's, there's no extra help for the doctor reminding them that there's a human being in front of them. So how, how does writing and communicating help, um, you know, for, to, to, to tone down that fear. How does it help you inside to kind of come to terms with something that externally we maybe don't have a lot of great resources for? Right. Well, the first primary thing that it does, it offers, it doesn't just automatically provide, but it offers ownership. If I'm afraid, one of the things I'm afraid of is I don't know if it's even my, uh, my fear and where coming from and how to manage it. But if I can write down even just a list and I can put it in my own handwriting and it says, I'm afraid to die. Let's just go to the full extreme. I'm wow. afraid to die. Well, let's cut to the chase. Then it's my handwriting. Those are my words. I, it's me who's afraid. I own that. That's a first step towards, towards managing it. First, you have to own it. You have to take responsibility for it. That's a pretty big step forward, and it's easy for me to say it. It doesn't happen just from writing it down one time, but it breaks the ice. It moves you forward. Then it says, okay, now that's, what's the next step? What are you afraid of? Is it the physical uh, moment or decline that leads to it? Is that you're, you're afraid of what you don't know? Are you afraid that all the afterlife that you learned about in your church or synagogue or mosque is now at odds with what you think is really happening to you? I mean, there's all these different questions to try to help to define it. But if you start to write it down, you start to take it away from the uncontrollable emotion of it and maybe bring it into a place where you can identify it and wrangle it and somehow wrestle it into something that's manageable and set yourself up to get the help that you need to figure it out. I like that breaking down. I like how you, how you talked about it. I, I was taking notes as you were talking, but I liked how you say, okay, the, the big phrase, I am afraid to die. I can think about maybe 10 different reasons, you know, besides some of the things that you were talking about. And many of those reasons, if you break it down, there is something you can do about it. You know, maybe if it is the decline that you are afraid of, 
there's things you can do to manage that decline. If you, you know, if you're thinking about things left undone, maybe you can hire people to help you get some things done. If you think maybe it's a religious thing, maybe you can, you know, hire or bring, call in the minister and the priest and to take care of that. You know, just as you were saying that, I kept thinking, yeah, there's things, there are active things you can do. And gosh, that would feel good. I mean, even again, going to that extreme, you know, in, in, I'm not even sure if it's every state, but in many states, you can, you know, with the hospice care or you can do the physician assisted suicide. Even if that's something that you want to look into, it's, it's again, it's a proactive step. It's not saying that you have to do it, but you can look into it and learn about it. And then I would think I would feel better just knowing my options and knowing my choices. Oh, without a doubt. That you've already taken a big step forward when you do that. You, you're, you're hitting it right on the head. And obviously, there's countless variations on all of this when you get into context and you start to, uh, whether someone is literally alone, that it's a, someone who lives alone, who doesn't have a partner or doesn't have family, um, you know, right there with them, who's going to help, who's going to be by their side as they go through this journey. Um, that's a big difference or whether someone comes in, I give you an example. I was at the MD Anderson cancer center in Houston, Texas, several years ago, and I was doing one of the workshops that I do, um, about writing and communicating your way through cancer. And one of the exercises that we did towards the end of the two hour session was asking people to kind of write to the person that they care about most who is going through something right now, whether it's themselves or their partner. And there was a gentleman there who was in the first year or two of his retirement, and his wife was there as a patient. She was in treatment, and, you know, it was serious. They had already they had traveled from the Midwest to, to get the kind of care that, that she needed there. So, But she was an outpatient at the time, so she was getting the care, but she was staying, you know, next to the hospital. And he wrote this piece, and then he, I asked him to share it, and the upshot was he terribly frightened and terribly upset all the years that he had anticipated to share retirement with his wife was now kind of compromised, at least temporarily, and everything was about her cancer, and it was his fear of losing her that this writing helped him address. He said, at the end of the day, that's what it is. It's like we can't go on this trip or that trip and enjoy the retirement, or we can't do this or we can't do that. That actually wasn't the biggest deal. It, it, when he wrote this down, over even just over a course of three or four minutes, he realized he had tears streaming down his face. I feel like my heart beating faster now as I tell it again. Is That's what cut to the chase was his fear of losing her, his wife of 40 or 50 years, I don't know, a long time. Yeah. And having him share that, this rather gruff, I would say kind of old school type guy who grew up being trained as a guy to not share his emotions and everything. And he even later talked about that. Yeah. That set a great, great example for everyone else in the workshop from other patients, other caregivers, uh, doctors and nurses who are all kind of there participating and some of them observing. And that spoke to what 
is a huge truth in this universe about what fear is and yeah. how we're conditioned to avoid it and push it away and not deal with it. But then when we do, it opens up some great, great opportunities for healing, for deeper communication. Yeah. And for, without a doubt, greater meaning to what our lives are. Oh, absolutely. And I was thinking two things with that. First, just by verbalizing it, by saying it, it's like letting the air out of the balloon and this big hidden scary thing, you say it and then it's like, ah, oh, it's kind of okay. And then I was also thinking so much, so often we keep inside things that might seem on the surface to be a little bit embarrassing or selfish. And what I mean by that is when somebody we love has a disease, whether it's cancer or whatever, it impacts us. And I think it's normal for us to feel, you know, the stages of grief, mad at them, angry at them. Um, yeah. You know, yeah, sad for what's being taken away in our life. How is this going to impact me? And we headspace it and we think, I can't say that because people are going to think I'm a selfish jerk. But it's true and it's normal and it's okay. I, I was just working with a um, woman whose son had committed suicide and she, she expressed to me, I'm so mad at him. Well, of course you are. And of course you should say that. And of course you should get that out. And you know, when we get embarrassed or, or filled with shame, I can't say that, what will people think of me? It's a whole right. other level of hiding. No, you're so right. There's, like we were talking about earlier, there's all these taboos. Like, mm -hmm. you know, um, it used to be decades ago, people would like, they'd whisper, oh, the Joneses down the street, they're getting divorced. Shush, 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 don't say anything. You know, as if they committed a murder or something. Right. Uh, or so-and-so, he's got cancer. As if, it, you know, you better stay away from him because you might get it too. Yes. I mean, this is... Stuff we grew up with, like, so, you know, and, and, you know, it's just kind of, kind of crazy, if you will. It's mm -hmm. just because it's, it's not based in any fact. And, no. and, and these mythologies take over our better judgment. And they still exist in these primal ways when you talk about fear uh, and fear of the unknown. Because we don't learn anything about cancer when we're growing up. You know, in high school, the basic stuff that everybody has in common, that education, no, there's, it's not like we get, nobody's going to med school in high school. We don't learn about any of that stuff. We don't even know, if you, if you come down to it, we don't even know what causes a common cold. That's the, the it's, it's tailor-made for fear of the unknown. And nowadays, with all the information that's available online, oh, my God, that's one of the most dangerous things is somebody gets a diagnosis of cancer. They go home and they open up their computer and they start, or not even home yet. They're in the parking lot outside the doctor's office on their phone, you know, searching, searching cancer, this cancer, that, and they're Googling everything in the universe and they're assaulted with, I'd say the majority of information is totally useless. Right. Because they don't even know enough yet to understand what makes sense for their particular case or the doctor hasn't, doesn't even have all the information yet, and, in, and that person needs more tests before they can determine what kind of treatment protocol would make sense. And so they're freaking out because they're, going, they're finding out all these sensational, awful stories about what happened to other people that may have nothing to do with them. And in, later on, that, the Internet will be really helpful because they start to look for 
people who have had similar experiences and they don't, and then that really, really goes to the core of them not feeling alone. Yes. So that's the other fundamental thing. We got fear and then you got isolation and alienation. And that is also equally dangerous because when you feel isolated, that I've got this and no one else can understand it. No one else can help me. I'm all alone with this. No matter what it is, that's, that's an awful feeling. These are the things at their very core that I address in the workshops that I do in the, in the book, in, in, you know, in, in the books that I've done yeah. Um, yeah. under this Right for Life heading. They really kind of go to the go cut to the chase on that and try to give people remedies to begin to chip away at what's really causing that and how they might be able to repair some of the damage that those fears are already doing. Exactly. And I know you've done several, you know, you've got the co-author and editor of the cancer book, you know, one of the chicken soup for the soul books, 101 stories of courage, which is what we need support. Yes. We're all in this together and love. And that is so important because as you were talking about our education, I was thinking the only education we get on cancer is don't get it. Don't get it. Eat right so you don't get it. Exercise so you don't get it. Wear sunscreen so you don't get it. it it's become, I don't want to say bigger than it is because cancer is important. But if you look at it, a huge percentage of the population gets some sort of cancer in their lifetime. And it's not necessarily something we can all prevent. And the panic and fear shouldn't be around not getting it. The panic and fear shouldn't happen. It, it should be like we all die. Everybody dies. We shouldn't be in a state of panic and fear over that. We should figure out how to live fully before we die. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You, you, you got it right. And so the whole idea is to say it's a, some of it's a question of acceptance. When you talked earlier before about the five stages of grief, there's, there's anger and denial. And there, acceptance is... Acceptance is sort of a rolling process in my mind. Um, it's not a black or white thing like I either accept or I don't accept because it kind of comes in waves. You know, it's a fluctuating thing. It ebbs and flows, but it's crucial. So that's the thing, for example, for someone when someone's diagnosed with cancer, that they have to get come to terms with it and accept it and say, okay, now this is something I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deal with. And I'm not a doctor, so I don't have that medical, I need, I need medical help, but I also need to expand my toolkit in other ways. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have new needs that I didn't have before. Part of them is I'm going to have moments when I am afraid. I'm going to have moments when I'm, when I'm at low energy or I feel sick or I'll, and I, then I need to communicate what I need and what I want and how I feel. And I've never had to do that. If I've never had to do that before, then how do I do it now? Yeah. How do I do it? That's what, that's kind of, that's part of what my books are for, to help you figure that out, to, to reach out to, to the people who care about you most and to reevaluate how you communicate with them. And it's also for other people, how do I communicate with someone who does have cancer? You know, how do I navigate that? There are ways to break it down just as like if, if someone is, like, let's just say two people are in couples counseling. A therapist doesn't just say, well, what's the problem? 
where do you even start with that? You have to break it down into, into doses, just like medicine is given out in doses. Well, healing has to come in doses. It doesn't just come. It's not like you're healed or you're not healed. Um, right. and, and, and it's a process. And so these exercises and these prompts and these kind of sometimes games, they're all designed to chip away at that and incrementally work towards better, more substantial communication that can bring people forward together. Yes. It's really simple in that regard. There's nothing magical or complicated about it. It's right. Just, Everyone can do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just providing some tools that either people forgot they had because they haven't used them, or some people who actually never learned to use them because they grew up in environments where it wasn't encouraged or it wasn't okay. A lot of people grew up with basically told, it's not okay to show your feelings. Right. And, and I think even in, a, even in 2019, there's still, in, in America at least, there's still more of that than there's an allowance and a license and an encouragement to do it. That's a bit of a battle that we that we have and we can't rely on traditionally trained doctors to do it they have no. their value but many of them are indispensable in, in, in their ability to make us better but they're not miracle workers no and many of them most of them I would say most most of them if almost all are not given this training in medical school about how to really communicate with people Right. And how to take care how to take care of the patient as a full human being, aside from all the clinical, you know, chemistry and math that goes along with, with any sort of diagnosis and prognosis. So this is a, an essential shortcoming in medical school training. Right. And unfortunately, almost every patient has to deal with that shortcoming. Mm-hmm. Take responsibility. Learn learn. Like you, you help to guide the doctor. In the end, I've met doctors who have told me that patients who have challenged them and asked these kinds of questions have made them better doctors and better human beings. Yes. And so who could argue with that? (laughs) Nobody. And, you know, everything you're saying is so perfectly in alignment with the show, which is flaunt. It's revealing yourself. It's, you know, getting naked and showing what's there. It's speaking your mind. It's saying that. And FLAUNT being an acronym is five steps that help people, whether it's the patient communicating with the physician, whether it's the physician, you know, becoming a better physician. And I want to take a moment and I want to walk you through those five steps of FLAUNT and get your take on how People who may be in this situation with cancer or knowing someone who has cancer, what they can kind of do on these five steps that would help. And, okay. Okay. And the first one is F, and that stands for find your fetish, which is find that thing that makes you passionate. You know, and I'm thinking finding your fetish in your terms with coming to cancer could be to find the cure or to find peace or to find the way to manage. So what, what for you and in your experience, what is that, that fetish point, that passionate point, that, that point where people, what is it that drives people with cancer oftentimes? Well, I think that this finding the cure thing is elusive and can be a little dangerous if too much premium is placed on that. 
often, even when someone goes through treatment and then their tests are clean and the person says, there's no trace of cancer left, you're cured, it's done. You're not. Anybody who knows anything kind of knows that, yeah, that's all fine and good, but, you know, and I ho- hopefully that'll stay true. But, you know, there is, there's always a chance of more, more with some cancers than others of, of it returning or remission or things like that. You know, it, and, and there's certain markers, whether you get out that six-month marker, that one-year marker, the five-year marker, the 10, 20-year marker, those are all really strong affirmations that a quote-unquote cure actually is happening with certain cancers. Other cancers, for example, um, there are people who are living with leukemia for years and years and years, and rather than it turning into a binary choice of life or death, it's really cancer in this case has become a chronic disease, and it's manageable, and that's not what you're going to die from. Right. You're going to die from something else, just like everybody dies, but it's not going to be the leukemia. Right. And if you take care of yourself in the right way and maintain that's that, the, the weakness that that caused in your body, which has been remedied, and can be held, held and maintained, that's not in the end what's going to get you. This comes back to what I mentioned before about acceptance. Yep. That may be the fetish. Now, that doesn't sound too sexy, you know, uh, but acceptance may be an ownership and responsibility. Those three legs of a stool. Yes. One could define, if, if you will, as a fetish. I love that because that fits so perfectly um, with everything that's coming up. And then the second step along that acceptance and that moving in is the L, which is laugh out loud. And I was just curious in your experience, what, what is the value of laughing or you know, writing and sharing some of the comical moments in a cancer experience? That's, it's great that you mentioned that because you're right. There's a tremendous crossover in what, in the, in the basic tenets of what you're doing and what all this right for life stuff is about. And in the book, I have what I call them joke workshops. And they're really about trying to tap in on what makes people laugh. What makes you, what, what's funny? What, what is funny for you? What really, what, what, you know, what rings your bell, what floats your boat, whatever you want to call it. What yep. does, what makes you giggle? What makes you smile? It's not about jokes, like, you know, classic joke telling, but it's really what gives you that kind of joy and that tickle. And that's crucial to tap into when your health is challenged. Oh my God. It's a big, big, important thing. And I jump into it right away with, okay. when I do these workshops, I not, a, I, I, you know, part of that comes from all my years of doing theater and variety arts and circus and stuff and being an entertainer and, and using comedy as a really big part of, you know, what I did for many, many years. So it's a natural thing for me to go to, or, or it's a natural default, you know, in, in certain times I embrace that. And I'm not, afraid. I've never been afraid of it. I've been sometimes concerned, like, Oh gosh, in the beginning, I was like, Oh, I better be careful. I don't want to, people to misconstrue what I'm doing for right. any sort of disrespect or being flip or fresh about something that is so in some cases life or death. Now hear this in the right way. So what is the answer? Right. Because right. in a way, and I mean that coming from the knowledge that I have and where I've been, I think I can say that and someone listening 
will understand what I mean when I say so what. Right. It, it's so what with utmost reverence and respect and understanding of where people are. But still, I think if you asked anybody, do you want to be morose and frightened right. and feeling like, like feeling like the worst, worst, worst when you're coming to the end of your life? Or do you want to still have some sense of humor and lightness and joy that you can, that you actually can feel that's genuine and yes. that also will rub off on the people that you love who are there with you yes. that you can share in, which would you choose? And I'm, and I, I'm, I think it's kind of a no brainer. It doesn't mean that there isn't great sadness. If I think about the fact that one day I'm going to die and, and I, my two children will lose their father. That makes me like wickedly sad and almost unbearable. But I also think that that's temporary. First of all, it's physiologically true, and research has shown that laughter has certain physical and physiological benefits to it as far as healing. Yes. It chemically does good things. And it's just like when people cry, sometimes they feel better after they, oh, I had a good cry, now I feel better. Well, it's something happening to your body. You're releasing stress. You're releasing chemicals. It's not just in your from the neck up in your brain, you think, oh, and I feel better now, I had a good cry. It's actually your body's thanking you. It's the same thing, very similar with laughter. And especially in the moments that we are most stressed, when our body is frozen, uh, paralyzed somewhat with fear, laughter releases some of that, just straight up, straight up. It's physical. And so, again, who could argue with that? It also... When you can laugh at something or have a moment of whimsy or, or, or any lightness, it allows you to think a little more clearly. It allows you to entertain other ways of looking at a particular problem. Yep. And yep. it opens up and invites better communication. Yes. Because if you have a smile on your face, even a fleeting one, another person is more likely to listen to you and respond to you then if your face is locked in stone. Exactly. And that doesn't mean that you're supposed to say, ah, oh, you know what? It's just cancer. Yeah, no big deal. Let's go watch a Marx Brothers movie. It's not, that's not the point necessarily. Although, you know. It can help. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. That's why people are encouraged to, to bring their iPads to chemo and watch a funny movie right. while they're sitting there getting chemo not that the chemo itself hurts it's not that usually it's not like right it's, but that you know what you're sitting there for you're in and you're and you're maybe looking at 10 other people in the same unit who are getting chemo and it's it could be heavy it could be you know it's, it's a lot of yeah that's, it's a, a, lot, that's a, lot. a lot and that's why it so perfectly slides right into the next point of flaunt which is the au which is accept unconditionally and and you know we've talked about acceptance a lot and even that acceptance can be the fetish and you know it it's accepting that that so what can be kind of funny that so what can be heavy but it can also be comical the so what could be you know what nobody's getting out of here alive it's it's accepting unconditionally that we don't know and that there's things we can do and there's things we just can't do and that we can do things perfectly 
and then step out into the street and get hit by that bus that we talked about earlier because we never saw that one coming. And oh, hello, hello, hello. Yeah, exactly. You know, let me tell you a quick little story. This is a story that came, actually, it's in the, in the cancer book you talked about, The Chicken Soup for the Soul. Yeah. Um, the woman um, was in, in cancer treatment. She was in chemo, and she was fairly close to the end of, of all the appointments, but she, she, she was... She was she was managing, but she was really tired out. You know, it had cumulatively had really worn her out. So, you know, trying to work, look after her family, and do chemo treatment. She she was you know really struggling just day to day to you know get home, and you know by the end of the day. So she was on her way home, and she said, "I got to get the car wash." So she went through the car wash, and then she said, "Well, I'll do I'll, I'll try to vacuum. You know, it's all it's right. dirty. Haven't." So she's she's vacuuming the car with one of those big hoses, and then she just said, "I got to push myself a little bit more and do this right." And so she climbed over. She's climbing over the front seat to the back, or the back back to the front. I can't remember which. And so she was kind of on her last legs for the day. It was like six o'clock. She's trying to get home for dinner after you know day of work, and then chemo, and then this, and then she just couldn't <laughs> could barely get her legs to climb over the seat. Yeah. And the well, wait. The the big vacuum. She lost control of the vacuum, and it hit her in the head, oh and it sucked her wig off. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. Well, it, it, at first it wasn't hilarious to her because she was a little horrified in the first moment, like few seconds. And she, but she didn't realize what happened. She sort of looked around like, where did my wig go? And then she sees outside the window, there's this big guy who apparently had been standing there the whole time watching her. And he was laughing. He started laughing. And then she realized, and she started to laugh. He gave her, in his, even in his rather large, intimidating, unfriendly presence, <laughs> gave her permission to see her situation objectively and she yes. and he laughed and laughed and and then she went home without her wig he couldn't she couldn't it was gone you know it sucked into that thing and so uh you know there she was exposed for right. in, in all her glory um and you talk about you know that naked truth well yep. there literally was and and huh. so she wrote the story when she first sent me a draft of it and we and then I spent some time talking with her on the phone and everything and she told me about it. I said, well, let's find a way to let me try to help you bring out more of that humor so that other patients or people related to people or patients, when they read this, they really can feel permission to fully <laughs> laugh at it because it's totally absurd. It's a one of a kind thing. And it, and like you had your first reaction, it's kind of hilarious. Yeah. Um, when you think of the context of it, it's a, it would be a great slapstick routine in a movie if, if, if you know, that a skilled comedian would try to, yes. to do and, and, and have it, you know, reflect on the screen. Um, so uh, anyway, it's just that's an example of the of the physical comedy uh, of this, let alone, you know, the other types of comedy that are more cerebral. So, yes. Uh, the potential is there. The potential is there. Any time that we're in crisis, we're only a whisper away from 
having it be kind of ridiculous and silly too. We right. all we take our own lives so seriously, and and yeah, probably we should at least you know a good deal of the time, but not all the time. Right. Um, you know, so like the, that, that that's undervalued. People sort of look at well, sense of humor. That's something that's extracurricular. You do right. that when you got extra. But life but is serious, not. and you got to blah 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 blah. I'm like, really? Are you sure? Yeah, which is what I always, you know, roll the next step of flaunt. The end is navigate the negative. And just everything that you said so perfectly personifies that. There's some really negative things going on with cancer, but you can navigate it with humor, with acceptance, with, you know, writing and going deeper, which goes then right to that last step of T, which is trusting your truth and just trusting this process. And I just want to know in our last few minutes here, what do you have to say to people with cancer about trust? Because cancer does shake kind of the bedrock of a lot of our foundation. Yeah, that's a tricky one. That in the end, that's something, that, first of all, that needs to be renewed each day, hmm. maybe multiple times during the day. The first thing, it's the question whether you trust yourself. Do I trust can I trust myself, first of all, with this fear of the unknown? Yeah. And the fact that there, all these questions I have are not going to get answers all, all, all at once. And you can to trust in the fact that my whole life has not changed overnight the way it feels. Like when you hear these words, you have cancer, those are three words. They, no, those three words didn't suddenly stop your feet from going one foot in front of the other. Right. They didn't stop you from seeing the person who just said that to you. They didn't stop you from smelling the smell in the room or from what it feels like to hold your husband or wife's hand who's sitting there right next to you. So on the one hand, you, you say, well, this sounds like life-altering news and maybe the worst thing I've ever heard, but I'm still sitting here. Right. I didn't just... I'm not the wicked witch of the West who just got melted. I'm still here. Right. And I'm going to be here tomorrow. And if I, you know, pay attention, it, then we get to the next thing. Do I trust my doctor? Right. Well, in, in a cancer situation, that's a really big, important question. We go back to bookend back to one earlier thing that we said much earlier today about certain people, certain generation who grow up to just do whatever the doctor says. Like, right. that's it. The doctor says, doctor's God. Well, maybe not so much. Doesn't mean that they're bad. They might right. be a very capable doctor, but is, is their plan for my treatment what I think is best for me? Right. And the first thing to do is say, trust that doubt. Go get a second opinion right. or a third right. or a fourth. That's the first thing. Get educated. You can trust yourself a lot more when you're educated. Right. Um, and this stuff is not easy to do, but there's a wealth of information that is available. So it's not like you're not in the desert of stuff where you might have been, people might have been like before the internet, for example, right. uh, where, you know, you got to read an 800 page medical book to find out what the hell's going on. Right. And you can't understand it anyway. So it makes it more frustrating. Uh, so that's the thing. You can, your trust can be built through acquiring information right. and, 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 and through demanding good 
effective, efficient communication. You have to demand it. And then speaking of all of that, you know, demanding this education, learning, educating yourself, where can listeners find out more about your book and this process? People can go to my website, tabatsky.com, T-A-B-A-T-S-K-Y.com, and they can find out about all these books. They can also look to organizations, for example, like if it's cancer, like to the Cancer Hope Network. And depending, some of it depends on where people live. Certainly uh, online, there's stuff you could connect with. Look, let's say you got diagnosed with a, a specific type of, of cancer and you're 48 years old and you're an Asian American male, you'll find an Asian American male who's 48 years old with the same exact cancer who lives in Argentina forever, and they're on there, and then you can communicate with them, and you end up within two hours, you end up on a Skype call, and, they, and they're six months down the road ahead of you in their treatment, and they can tell you, this is what's worked well, this is what I had problems with, here's the things, make sure you ask your doctor about this, or make sure you talk to your nurse about that, and man, at like 20-minute Skype call later, you can feel way better. Perfect. And, and there's, there's lots of different resources online to bring that. So one never really has to be alone alone the way it used to be. There are, there are patient and, and, and caregiver support groups in more and more cancer centers um, than ever before. There are other alternative types of therapy that I don't personally think that it's an either or. Like you don't have to choose between right. Western, Eastern medicine, because oftentimes it's how you combine them that is the most effective. And there are doctors that do that. Um, I did a book last year called Rx for Hope with a wonderful oncologist uh, in Seattle, Dr. Nick Chen, P-H-E-N, and he combines Eastern and Western practices. His father, uh, his grandfather, when he grew up in China, his grandfather practiced traditional Chinese medicine. And then... Uh, Dr. Chen, who's studied all over the world and is a MD in oncology and a PhD in immunology and is very advanced in, in nutritional education, he combines all of these things in the way he treats his patients. And he's one of the only people I know in the country who has people who are told, we can't do anything more for you by the big cancer centers. You have stage four. You should go get your affairs in order. I've met these people, I've photographed these people, I've interviewed them five, 10, 15 years later, Dr. Chen has taken care of them and he's right. basically turned their death sentence into a chronic disease and they're living good lives. So there's hope and there's options. You gotta push for them and you gotta be curious. You gotta tap your curiosity bones and, and go help yourself. Exactly. So listeners, whether it's you now, whether it's somebody in your immediate family or friend group, or whether this is not even in your world at all, I hope this interview has inspired you to think about communicating beyond some taboos, communicating for your health and well-being, but also for the health and well-being of those around you on the planet. Uh, check out David's book, Right for Life, Communicating Your Way Through Cancer, or you can find him online as well. David, thank you so much for being here. It has been an absolute joy interviewing you. Thank you for the work that you are doing. Ula, thank you so much for having me. Um, and I, I wish everybody well, all people who are listening. Thank you.
Sounds wonderful. Thank you, listeners. Have a great week. And as usual, don't forget to flaunt. Tune in next time to flaunt. Build your dreams. Live your sparkle with radio host Laura Cheadle every Wednesday at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. Eastern Time on syndicated Dream Vision 7 Radio Network. Come release self-judgment, reveal your naked self-worth, and re-choreograph a life filled with joy. Flaunt. Find your fetish, laugh out loud, accept unconditionally, navigate the negative, and trust in your truth. Find out more at lauracheadle.com. That's L-O-R-A-C-H-E-A-D-L-E.com. 